Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. My good friend, Dr. Eric Camp, professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University, is back with us. We couldn't go through the year without you, Professor Camp. This is my last live show of the year, and I want to thank you out of the gate for all the tremendous programming that you've uh, provided and information you've given us. Things that we've learned from you are really significantly important to us, particularly at this time. So thank you very much. You know, Roy, I've told everybody, and I make no secret of it, I love being on with you. I love hearing from the listeners, whether they are complimentary or not. And if teaching is the thing that I love to do most in this profession, uh, being on with you on Sundays or Saturdays would be number two. I consider it an honor, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And as far as your students are concerned, I've checked how they feel about you online, and uh, you are a tremendous favorite with your students. They really like you a lot. Well, thank you very much, but I have to tell you the truth. They're well remunerated to say that, so well, it really well, doesn't. Well, and, and I guess the check for me is in the mail too, right? It absolutely <laughs> is. I can't believe you haven't got it yet. I sent it years ago. <laughs> Let me just play for you again, because I want your thoughts on this. Before we get into the other things we're going to talk about, so Yves Giroux was on the program yesterday, the parliamentary budget officer. I really like him. He comes on the show and he's a just he's a, he's a guy like you, you know. He has information, but he knows how to he knows how to share it so people understand. Here's listen again to what he said. There seems to be a desensitization about what the government is doing, a disinterest or just a sense of we've had enough with all this. And that's worrying me because it gives a free pass to politicians and to the government to do what they want as opposed to what Canadians need. Professor Cam, your thoughts? Well, I'm glad that you replayed that for anybody who didn't hear Mr. Giroux, but I did as I always do, and he is a wise man. Whether he talked about desensitization in terms of deficits and debts, or he talks about a complete lack of transparency, he's right on both parts. It seems the government, in a lot of ways, has kind of, well, for lack of a better word, given up. I'm not really sure that they understand the mandate and the challenge ahead of them. And right now is one of the rare times that I sit before you where it is a little bit fuzzy. I mean, I blame the government for the same reasons that Mr. Giroux does, but sometimes things aren't as clear as they should be. And this week, thanks to Omicron, um, we really have two very com different competing forces, Roy. And so I'd like to sort of illustrate them for you. We have the spending up forces, the inflationary forces that we've been facing for a while now, be it the CERB money pushing up prices, supply chains pushing up prices, um, what some people consider uncapped consumer spending pushing up prices. But now, thanks to our new friend Omicron, we have our first deflationary trend in a long time. And so you ask yourself, we've got the pressures pushing up prices, the pressures pushing down prices. What's going to win? And the answer is, and I hate to do this because I like to have definitive answers, but you'd need a crystal ball. You would need a crystal ball to know what's going to happen. But Mr. Giroux is 100% right on things like debts and deficits and repaying of future generations of cost. 
the government has kind of thrown in the towel and said, we frankly don't know what to do. We don't have a mandate. And it's it's very sad. I think everybody will agree. Yeah. There was one uh, issue we talked about yesterday with uh, Tom Korski from uh, Black Box Reporter. And uh, it had to do with the finance minister um, telling uh, parliament that the cost for Bill C-2, an act to an act to provide further support in response to COVID-19, that'll make your eyes blink, uh, was going to be $7.4 billion minutes after the MPs uh, passed the bill and adjourned for Christmas. The minister stepped forward and said, no, no, uh, no, not $7.4 billion, I'm sorry, $11.9 billion. That is the kind of move, the kind of political decision-making or manipulation that absolutely completely frustrates the average person. What does it do to you? It's very frustrating. And frankly, as a teacher of economics, it's very hard to understand how I can go up in front of my students and tell them that we have a stable government that makes good, sound, rational decisions with respect to monetary and fiscal policy when it looks like they're playing a game of flip over the card, see what comes up and announce that today as policy. I mean, it's it's very, very tough. What I try to do in these cases is look at something and somebody that is a little bit more credible and has a little bit more stability. And um, you and I actually tossed around this week for a second that the Bank of Canada, yeah. which is a body that I tend to respect, frankly, a little bit more than our federal government, they were presented this week with a dual mandate proposition, a group of economists and business people, both academic and, and what some people would call real world, came forward and said, we understand that you inflation target, but what we really need right now is a full employment target. And the Bank of Canada soundly rejected that. And they said, right now, we just can't do it. We have got to get out there and control inflation before prices go spiraling up and people's paychecks start to amount to closer and closer to zero. So at least, and I know this isn't going to make anybody unemployed feel better, and this isn't going to make anybody who is $200 away from losing their home feel better, but I'm I'm a little bit warmed in the heart to know that the Bank of Canada hasn't lost sight of what we need to do. We need to control people's paychecks so that they don't get eroded from within. So, uh, Mr. Cam, Professor Cam, inflation, um, looking ahead to 2022, what do you foresee? Let's drag that crystal ball out and shine it up a bit. Well, I, I would actually like to do that. By the way, I just want to mention that I did get my booster this week. And in a related story, my cell phone reception has never been better. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't Can we try, resist. tie the two together for sure? So mine should improve tomorrow then. I don't know. You know what, Roy? I'm in a great mood because it's your show. And I just noticed that Dallas and Miami both won their games today. Right so on, Cowboys. This is really a day. But let me tell you. So you want to bring out the crystal ball. Okay, you can we can take this down. Someone can record it and they can take me to task next year when I'm wrong. But I think the the two operative words for the months coming up ahead for for Canada is risk aversion. I think that people, uh, businesses, every every member of the circular flow really has to practice some risk aversion. Number one, I think stagflation, as you mentioned, is the economic issue moving forward. You mentioned the government tripping over its own shoelaces increasing spending yet again to these unprecedented levels. And if they keep doing that, we are absolutely headed for higher inflation 
and higher unemployment. So number one, I'd say we've got to watch out for stagflation. Number two, interest rates are going up. That's not me. That's the Bank of Canada. But thanks to Omicron, we're not sure how fast now. So I would ask people again in this vein of risk aversion, let's control household debt. It is the most serious, serious time since the 90s to do that. If you don't have to make that big purchase, maybe you hold off right now. Speaking of holding off, jobs we know are underperforming. You may see job numbers going up and the government does a happy dance, but those jobs are part-time jobs. They are not jobs that have pensions or benefits. This is not the time to be hunting if you're full-time employed. Take the certainty outcome every time. And then quickly, we know the energy sector is underutilized. I wish I could predict for you that will get better, but there's no evidence to that. And the government has to facilitate an unclogging of the supply chain. So there's one, two, three, four, five, Roy, but you put them all together. People have to practice risk aversion. At the end of the day, make sure you and your family can can pay your bills, can feed each other. And let's enter 2022 safe and healthy. Yeah, I just wonder sometimes, and I shouldn't really because the evidence is right in front of me, whether governments are in fact addicted to spending and whether they equate spending with winning elections. And that's what it's all about, winning the next election. And and so we're now looking what what's our what our what's our inflation rate four point seven, yeah it's it's creeping up on five percent which is three percent above what the Bank of Canada promised it would never do yeah, and the in the U S I think in November it was six point seven percent, and we're yep. looking at gasoline prices up almost thirty three percent in the last year which affects everything from pumping gas into your vehicle or diesel into a company truck all of this shelters up four point eight percent food is up. We just heard from uh, uh, from uh, Professor Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University. We're looking at another family of four, looking at another $1,000 for food costs in uh, 2022. It really does speak to about to watching what you spend and and be careful about what you spend. And, and yet at the same time, Professor Camp, we get the message that, hey, this is how you drive the economy forward. You have to spend money you know, in order to help business survive and drive the economy forward. So what do you do? You have to spend money, Roy, if you have the money to spend. You can't be foolish. We know that we are not all equal. We're not just a homogeneous lump of people that have same incomes and same spending and and say just we're different. We are different people. People that can spend will spend. Wealthy people will spend. I'm not talking about those people. I'm trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, Roy, through this thing we call economics. And I'm telling people that if they are close to the margin, then they've got to be prudent. They've got to practice risk aversion and they've got to keep money back for such an emergency now. Now, Roy, an emergency like filling up your car or going shopping at the grocery store. I tell you, I was shocked when I read that uh email so you know borrowed every nickel that that this individual could to buy the home and then uh, now i can't afford to put tires on my truck i I thought yeah but you know you should be thinking about that when you're borrowing to the max you should be thinking about that but i and then i think sometimes people just get caught up in the process and get, get caught up in fear and if i don't buy now it'll never be available to me that's not necessarily the 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 case It's not the case at all, but you're right. People get caught up in fear. 
governments get caught up in fear. And we have many, too many examples this year of people that have made poor decisions. And the only thing that's going to reel this in is making better prudent choices on the part of our government and the part of our population. And I would ask the government in case they're listening, because why wouldn't they be, that in a lot of ways, governments have to take the lead. And I wish the government would just start making better decisions and sending a better positive message to their population other than you can spend, 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 and it doesn't matter because they have no limit on their credit card, but you and I do. What did you make of the fiscal statement? Um, much ado about nothing, Roy. I've heard very little that makes me um, warm and fuzzy inside. I still think that this crew is making it up as they go along. And I wish I could say something more positive than that. But I think it's just same old, same old. And and if I'm wrong, I'll hear about it on Twitter. Yeah, and we uh, we were supposed to be getting a budget. We went more than two years without a budget, and uh, I, I can't remember the. I can't think of another organization, as somebody said on the program yesterday. Could you think of another organization that could go uh, for two years without presenting a budget? Any town, any city, any province, any other government? We were the only government in the world, I think, that went well. You know, the reports to its people that went two years without a budget. So God knows what we're going to get. But there has to be responsible. Uh, action. What's the what's the most important thing that has to be in the next federal budget? The next federal budget has to have some clear statement of where interest rates are going, yeah. on how they are going to fight inflation, and what they are going to do to start reducing fiscal stimulus. If you don't attack three, not one or two, three of those things, Roy, then 2022 is going to look just like 2021. Are you at all concerned about the short-term future for all of us? And I'm staying within economics now. I'm not going venturing into the COVID arena, although it's all tied together, I guess. But are you concerned for the short-term well-being, let's say for the next five years, for the people of this country? Well, of course. I mean, and any economist who tells you that they're not, of course, should be relieved of their duties. But we have some serious issues right now. We don't have time for cosmetic ones. We have things creeping up on us like prices that are just spiraling and yeah. people's paychecks in real terms that are just plunging. And we can't leave these things alone. The government thinks at times that they can just make an announcement and walk away and let's see what happens. But the last time that we did that in the 1990s, see what happens, gave us 20% interest rates and people <laughs> walking away from houses. So me, I'm very concerned. I'm always concerned about the population. Economics is a social science. And I think that's why I led today and I'll conclude today with please be risk averse at this time. Email from Lynn. I really like Professor Cam. He's so sensible and very nice, too. Well, that's Roy. I really like Lynn. So it goes both ways. <laughs> you are something else. So the most important factor, the most and we have about 30 seconds here. The most important thing that has to happen for us to have some sort of appropriate alignment fiscally, economically in 2022 has to be what? Price control. Price control, price control. The central bank has to do its job and reel in inflation so that people's paychecks still mean something. As we've said many times, and as my good friend Ron Foxcroft said on this program years ago, everything you own, everything that you have in your home got to you by truck. Somewhere along the way, usually also the final delivery system involved a truck. And the trucking industry in this country is indispensable. Huge, huge land mass, relatively small population, large urban centers, great distance between the urban centers, and the trucks 
are what delivers what you and I have. So we spoke last uh, weekend with Mr. Foxcroft, who's the chairman of Fox 40 Industries, and that includes Fluke Transport, based in Hamilton, Ontario, and David Carruth of OneForFreight.com. Both gentlemen are veterans, multi-decade veterans of the trucking industry, and they spoke with us about what they're facing, driver shortage, um, increased fuel costs, 5 to 30%, listen to this now, 5 to 30% of trucks in this country sitting idle because of a lack of drivers. There is going to come the point when push comes to shove, and, well, let's talk about that and find out where we are, where we're headed. It's part two of our discussion. Ron Foxcroft, chairman of Fox 40 Industries, again, including Fluke Transport. And in Hamilton, Ontario, David Carruth, OneForFreight.com, are both back with me. Ron, David, good to talk to you again. Thank you, Roy. Thank you very much, Roy. Let's start with this. If I may start with this and go back to the statistic that you uh, shared with us last weekend. Between 5 and 30% of trucks in this country that should be out doing what they do, delivering, picking up, delivering, are sitting idle in yards. Uh, Fox, what does that represent, really? What does that 5 to 30% represent? What that represents is what David made reference to last week, Roy. In this country right now, we have an economic challenge, perhaps an economic uh, crisis, but we have an HR challenge and perhaps an HR uh, crisis on our hands. And, and um, you know, the statistics are 18,000 shortage of drivers in Canada, uh, 80,000 drivers shortage in, uh, in the United States. And, of course, this is a North American problem. It's basically in reference to the economic challenge, Roy, because trucks are sitting and trucking companies cannot put drivers into trucks to move the freight. It puts the costs of goods up. It's basically it costs more to operate a trucking company or a truck, which in turn has to be passed along to the consumer. So, Roy, your listeners, when they go to pick up their material, the grocery store, the big box store, and so on, uh, let's face it, in 2022, they're going to see large increases in basic consumer products. Okay, David, that 5 to 30%, is that of trucks sitting idle, does that also represent 5 to 30% of consumer goods not moving? Um, I, I think it's a, it's a potential, it's a very good point, and I think you can draw the uh, cor- correlation between the two numbers. So your perspective then on uh, just not, not everybody who's listening now was with us uh, last weekend. So uh, would you just pick up where Ron left off on the driver shortage, the truck sitting idle, and the implications for the trucking industry and for the consumers? Well, it, 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 what it what will do is it, it puts the decision, for the most part, in the, uh, in the hands of the trucking companies as to what freight moves and what freight doesn't move. If you don't have enough trucks to move all of the goods that are out there, uh, then you have to make a decision as uh, as trucking companies whose freight you move and whose freight you don't. Yeah, you said that last weekend as well. And that really becomes then an arbitrary decision. It's like triaging who gets what. Ron, when it comes to these drivers, 18,000, that's a big number in this country, 80,000 in the United States. How do you counteract that? And particularly when we know drivers are saying, look, if there's going to be a mandate, a vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, a significant number, you know better than I how many are saying, in that case, I'm walking away. 
That's exactly right, Roy. And basically, uh, uh, drivers now, it's it's a good job. It's a good career. It's a well-paying job. But uh, drivers now can be, uh, using a sport term, they can be free agents because uh, everybody in the trucking business are looking for drivers. Now, one of your listeners, and I have to make reference to this, uh, sent us a, a correspondence after the show and said, you know, I, um, I'm qualified, I have a driver's abstract, and I'm, I'm ready to go, and I can't get hired by a uh, trucking company because, uh, quote, I don't have any experience. Roy, uh, in, in David's company, in many companies, and in our companies, we have what's known as a driver coach trainer. So if someone comes in with a clean abstract, all the references check out, we provide him with training, a coach, an opportunity. The other criticism of our industry is it costs upwards of nine dollars to $15,000 to go to truck driver school. In our company, and I'll let David talk about his company, we have a program where if you work with us for a period of time, we have a program in place where you will be reimbursed for your training. So uh, if somebody is looking for a steady job, an interesting career, uh, basically uh, uh, a steady job, uh, a paycheck every Thursday afternoon, uh, there's an opportunity in the trucking uh, industry, and it, it shouldn't be a deterrent if all things are equal, your abstract and your references, because so many of the reputable trucking companies have what they call a trainer or a coach to welcome people into our industry. The other thing, and if I could just very quickly talk about this, we need a marketing and communication program to come to us from the government to do a public relations program on our industry and attract people uh, for jobs within the trucking industry. Yeah. You know, but I've heard from politicians, and not not necessarily in the immediate past, but in the last few years, I heard federal politicians say, well, the trucking industry is all going to be changing, that a truck driver is not a long career, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, that is not going to help anybody, because as long as we have items, as long as we have roads, we have goods to move, trucks are going to be on those roads. And it just seemed like a very unwise statement. Uh, David, what, what about your company? If somebody comes to you with a... You know, uh, uh, not a great deal of experience, but they have the uh, they're licensed. What happens? So we have an actual uh, documented program uh, that puts that provides the driver with actual experience, um, and over a period of time, uh, we pay him full wages. And over a period of time, he um, he gets out on the road. He or she gets out on the road by themselves. Mm. So, so Ron was talking about uh, government engagement, government involvement, and the politicians are talking about, and appropriately so, they're talking about the pandemic, they're talking about COVID. At times, I, th- I think they, they're repeating themselves and, and losing uh, their audience. But when it comes to your industry, let me start with you, David, on this one. When it comes to the trucking industry, how much really uh, appropriate and focused attention is being paid to the needs of the trucking industry by federal and provincial governments. Again, looking at what Ron said, 18,000, the truck driver shortage number is at 18,000, which is huge. How much appropriate interest is being paid by governments? Um, Interesting question. So a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, through Trucking HR Canada, uh, the government has started to get their toes into 
subsidy and wage programs uh, for younger people coming in. Uh, our company just recently brought on three people under the age of 30, and it goes to uh, not just driving jobs, but dispatch jobs or clerical jobs. So the government is starting to get into the. But to Ron's point, they need to do more. Okay. And Ron, when it comes to truck drivers, David just talked about three drivers coming in at the age of 30. The opposite, the, 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 the contrast to that is that truckers are, I think, the majority, what, over the age of 55 and retiring faster than the general population, which is another problem. That's exactly right. But I want to make a, a point here and give kudos to the insurance companies. I've been in this business for several decades when I first got into this business, the insurance company had a mandate that they did not want us to hire anybody under the age of 25. Uh, Roy, that's gone away. That has gone away. They've jumped in, and they've recognized the crisis that we're in. I don't know how much time we have to talk here, Roy, but um, one of the other problems, there's, there's a crisis in moving more freight because in the last several decades, we've been very comfortable depending on goods and services coming from offshore uh, from another continent. And, and we haven't had what's known as uh, pandemic fatigue that we've had to deal with. So in, in decades, we're, we're very comfortable. Everything's coming from uh, another continent, and it comes into Canada, and we move it at a regular scheduled rate. Well, the pandemic has has really changed that, Roy, because now it's very difficult to get goods and services from another continent. And if you recall, last March, to, for about six weeks, companies basically stopped making inventory, stopped building inventory. Yeah. And when they resumed, suddenly there was not a an employment pool to draw from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what, what I'd like to do, if I, if I could, Ron and David, Ron Foxcroft, David Gruth, if I, could, if I could ask you this, what's the best case scenario and also what's the worst case scenario? Let's start with the worst case scenario. If this situation, the current situation continues and should the driver shortage become more pronounced, what then, David? Well, um, I don't know if we have a crystal ball to predict that. Um, it, it, it's a very interesting question, and I think it's something that that, uh, that puts everybody in, uh, puts the owners of the trucks, puts the drivers in a, in a different situation, um, puts the lack of drivers and the lack of capacity uh, front and center. Uh, and, and I think it, it, it could get to the point where uh, there are literally are communities that don't have uh, toilet paper on their shelves, that don't have a fully stocked uh, grocery store that don't have the medications that they need. It, it, it's, it's that simple. Yeah. Ron? Yeah, uh, uh, Roy, uh, basically you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And, and David just laid out the problem. If we don't deal with this situation, then uh, we're going to have uh, shelves that are, are empty. Roy, you, you, you had a situation this week where you went into a store, got the last item, and right, asked when, when are they going to restock it, yep. and they said, we don't know. don't know. Our costs have gone up, Roy, and, and David made reference to that, that everybody's 
costs of goods are going up. And we have four areas. Well, first of all, I want to thank the government for two things. Number one, they made decisions fast when the pandemic hit, and they provided some subsidy programs that were very useful. And thank you very much, government, because it's very easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and just criticize the government. But there's four areas where we need heavy investment. HR, for example, we have an onboard computer uh, system in all of our trucks that identify to our trainers and our coaches where a driver may need additional training and help. Number two, technology. Roy, when I got into this industry, you dispatched with a Hillroy notebook. Now you have a very in-depth computer system that is very expensive. The other thing, capital costs. When, when David and I got into this business, our trucks were getting four miles to the gallon. Now, because they're more sophisticated, we get eight miles to the gallon, so we need investment in new equipment. The other thing, Roy, basically, fuel. Fuel costs are going up, and it's hitting everybody. What we really need, too, is, is a, as I said earlier, a marketing and communications program yeah. that will attract people to our industry. Yeah, for sure. But, so, so yeah. And, 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 Ron, people won't Monday morning quarterback the governments if they just do it right or let us understand they're doing their best. And that's why people get frustrated because our sense is exactly the opposite. Anyway, uh, is there – I'm going to come back to this, this concerning scenario because it is concerning. If 5 to 30 percent of trucks are not moving now, if that number were to increase, that would mean I would think that trucking firms, some would go out of business, which would just exacerbate the problem because it doesn't necessarily follow, David, that drivers from one company would then switch to another. Maybe, it would, maybe that's the way it would happen, but it doesn't necessarily follow. This is a very deeply concerning issue that you're facing. Yeah, so I think the um, I, I think the immediate thing we could do uh, is uh, is put some time between um, the incoming vaccination mandate and then what the federal government is talking about with federally reg- regulated companies. You know, put a year ahead, put a year down the road, and allow the supply chain to you know to level out a little bit. So so in, instead of the January 15th and 22nd and then the conversations that are going on in the federal level right now, put it off for a year. 80%, 80, 80% uh, on average, uh, 80 to 85% of truck drivers are vaccinated. We've also done extensive work within our industry through OTA and CTA and have shown the numbers to the government that our our industry is one of the safest industries, and we don't see a lot of spread within the driving community. It's okay. a solo career for the most part. You're in your truck by yourself. Um, all of the shippers and consignees put really responsible uh, COVID procedures in place when this started that, to keep the drivers safe, to keep their own companies safe, and it's worked. Let's get at the uh, the whole issue of sports and uh, postponements of games in leagues. The NFL is making some changes. The uh, the NHL, the Canucks and Leafs game at the Rogers Center in Vancouver yesterday postponed tonight's game against the Arizona Coyotes. That's how you're supposed to say it, Coyotes. Also postponed, the Bruins shut down until Boxing Day. The Flames shut down until December the 23rd. Florida Panthers and Colorado Avalanche on hold until December the 27th. Teams, including the Edmonton Oilers, have players and coaches testing positive 
and the NHL and the NHLPA reviewing the regular season schedule because of Omicron. And over to my good friend Bob Stoffer, host of Oilers Now, Monday to Friday on 630 Ched in Edmonton. Bob, what's your view concerning what's taking place? What's going to happen, do you think? And what do you believe is the sensible approach for the NHL and the NHLPA? Well, Roy, first of all, I'm, I'm just happy that I'm back in Canada because I flew with the Oilers uh, on Friday into Seattle. Our flight got delayed five and a half hours. We were supposed to fly at three. Uh, what happens in the National Hockey League is vaccinated players were to be te- tested three times a week. Unvaccinated players were supposed to be tex- uh, tested every day. There currently is only one unvaccinated player that I know of in the National Hockey League. That's Tyler Bertuzzi of Detroit. He never comes to play in Canada when the Red Wings uh, make the trip upwards. So we are in a situation as traveling media, as broadcasters for the team, where we get tested before every U.S. trip uh, the day before. But because the team had a COVID outbreak, that the, the, the team has to get tested every day instead of three times a week in that situation. So the more you test, uh, the more you find. We we had a situation where the outbreak started on Monday. Oilers head coach Dave Tippett, Ryan McLeod, a 22-year-old uh, forward, uh, tested positive uh, for for COVID. And then over the course of the last five days, uh, Devin Shore, whose uh, uh, mother actually works uh, in the health uh, the, the the health industry, uh, followed up by uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Duncan Keith. And then while we were down in uh, Seattle Saturday morning, we got tested. Yes, a pull Um For Canadians, there's some flexibility in getting them back uh, into Canada, yeah, especially in Seattle. You can drive back across the border and quarantine in Canada. Uh, for European players, it's a bit of a headache. So people need to understand that are listening to the show right now, Roy, like the NHL players are basically at this time being tested every single day. To put things in perspective, uh, U sports, and I used to be an SID at the University of Alberta, they don't get tested unless somebody gets sick. Uh, so they've been playing all fall without regular testing. Uh, the Western Hockey League uh, will be testing coming out. They're in their Christmas break now. They will be testing coming out of the Christmas break, but they have not been testing uh, because testing costs a lot of money. So the NHL is basically at a standard that off the top of my head, Roy, you might know better than me, but I don't know too many other industries that are testing that regularly. No. And, and as we've seen with Omicron. Trucking, maybe. Based, yeah, based upon the, uh, you know, the initial findings in places like South Africa, it's, it's highly transmissible but doesn't have the same effect, especially given the fact that everybody is vaccinated. So to me, it's really frustrating because the only people that seem to get empowered by this, Alberta has just under 15% of the population, 12-plus, that's currently unvaccinated. And they're the ones that are sitting there going, well, see, these these fit, healthy hockey players are still testing positive for COVID. Of course, the severity of the illness is not, is you know, barely even, I mean, it, for a lot of the players, they're completely asymptomatic right now. Uh, Calgary obviously had a massive outbreak, uh, but their guys were all, relatively speaking, quite healthy. And so people ignore the stats, and Alberta's health website is terrific. Uh, if you're 50 to 59 listening right now, say in Ontario, I want you to think about something. You're 122 times more likely over the last four months uh, to end up in ICU in the province of Alberta if, if you're unvaccinated versus vaccinated. 
122 times more likely. Uh, there's something like 3.68 cases per 100,000 for vaccinated Albertans in ICU, 50 to 59, and there's over 450. Yeah. So, for, uh, so, so, so Bob, what, yeah. made, what makes sense from the uh, professional hockey player's perspective, from your perspective? Well, you're, you're, you travel with the team. So we have these teams that are postponing their games or they're forced to postpone yeah. December 26th to December 23rd, December 27th. We know the teams. In the National Football League, they've now decided, you know, they've got a couple of game delays to Monday and Tuesday. But the decision they've made is that unvaccinated yeah. players will be tested daily. Vaccinated players only tested if they display COVID symptoms. It kind of assures that the regular season will continue in the NFL. Well, and they have, you know, greater urgency uh, because they don't have any runway. I mean, they're closing in on the conclusion of the regular season. Yeah. Uh, Roy, part of it, part of it, they've only got one national jurisdiction to deal with. That's the United States. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have two in mm-hmm. Canada. And we consistently in this country love to live in the tyranny of the minority. It's just how we are. Uh, we virtue signal all the time to the point that we make it more difficult on Canadian citizens at times than citizens of other countries, it seems like, to get into our country. It's crazy. So it's, that's my own personal belief. So uh, what makes sense is what the NFL is doing. I don't think that's, I mean, yesterday the NHL announced increased uh, protocols uh, for for their players. I, 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 I got to tell you, for the guy, like, you know, I have kids. Uh, for all the, all the people that were on that trip Friday that was being delayed five and a half hours, we're all thinking the same thing. Like, if we test positive Saturday morning in Seattle, are we going to be stuck here? Yeah. Right? That We're all thinking the same I'm thing. I'm sure I, you I, were. Like, I'm going to tell, I, 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 and, and I'm, like, I'm, I'm a triple shotter. So I've already had a, I, I had AZ and then I had a couple Pfizer's. So, um, I, I will tell you that uh, Anaheim is, in theory, supposed to come to Evans, so they have to cross the border into Canada. The border is a big issue. The doctors have a lot of control. You talk about this every weekend on your show, about how much impact that industry has right now and, and how powerful doctors around the world are. And the, the problem with the situation is it's fluid. Even from a hockey cap management perspective, it's a joke. I mean, they, don't put, they, they should be putting the players that are in COVID protocol um, basically in something similar to LTIR, but they don't do that. So teams that are up against the cap, and we had a flat cap because of the pandemic, teams that are up against the cap are having to play understaffed right now, undermanned. It's just, and so it ruins, to me, a degree of the integrity of the game because they haven't shown, they haven't been fluid enough in terms of reading and reacting to the situation, changing yeah. the rules. Of it. It's just, it's nuts. Bottom line here is there's a distinct possibility we could be shut down by Monday. That is a distinct possibility. And that's tomorrow. But the NFL model needs, that. that's the model that needs to be followed. I agree. The NFL, you know, they're, they're doing it correctly. Right. And, and and we'll see. I mean, the evidence will be uh, will be in front of us in uh, in fairly quick order as far as the NFL is concerned. Let me just throw the uh, one other question at you. We have about a minute here. What about the whole issue of, because, you know, we have two borders, as you say, Canada and the United yeah. States with the NHL. But now we're going to inject Beijing into the mix and the yeah. Olympic Games there with players from the National Hockey League from n- numerous countries, perhaps descending on Beijing. What's your thought on, on sending the NHL players to the Olympics? Uh, well, I... The Russians want to go, right? They're going to want to go. Everybody else is going to. I mean, there's no. It's a once in a life. I know somebody that couldn't go to the 1980 Olympics because of the U.S. led boycott, right? Russia because of Afghanistan. So 
uh, and they, they hated the United States forever after that because they let it, what it approved. So we won't get into the geopolitical discussion and China's human rights record. Players don't worry about that. They want to play. But because of COVID, because we don't want, they don't even know what the rules are going to be. It could be three to five weeks out. Mm-hmm. Distinct possibility that I, other than Russian players, I don't, between you and me, at the, well, I, I, at this stage of the game, I don't think it's going to happen. I just, and they're, that window, that three-week window during the season, that's going to be the runway to make up the games. Mm-hmm. But again, this, by you know what, by the end of today, the NHL may decide we're going to shut down for the rest of the Christmas break and maybe not start up again until January 1st. Yeah, that's January my feeling. 1st is a big deal in the States because they've got that outdoor classic, that winter classic, right. and that's a big launch point for TNT. It is time for our final live segment for 2021 on this program. The next two weekends you'll hear best-off shows. But uh, I could think of no better way of concluding the year than calling on Catherine Swift at Working CDNs, Working Canadians, Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, financial consultant advisor, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and seatmate to Justin Trudeau during question period when they were both in opposition. So it's our Beauties and the Beast year-ender. Beauties, how are you all? Hey, Roy, we're great. Absolutely. Think for yourself, I'm sick. (laughs) What's up? What's up? What's going on? What's going on, Catherine? I'm going for my COVID test tomorrow morning. I'm quite sick. Oh, my. Oh, no. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not terribly sick, but it's it's, um, something going on there. Please let us know. Well, yeah, I will. I will. Thank you. (laughs) I'll be letting everybody know that I've seen in person for the last week or so, I'll tell you. Oh, no. (laughs) I can hear a little bit in your voice. I hope you're Yeah, I'm I'm coughing, sore throat, achy, blah, blah, you know, all the classic symptoms. But it could just be a bug, right? I mean, I've got grandkids now, which means that you're sick half the time, just like you are when your own kids are little, right? And it is the the cold season. It is the cold season, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, but I am going to get tested because, of course, my whole family's coming for Christmas, right? And so if I'm sick, I better know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Uh, for well, you. we hope you're okay. Well, and we... I'm and I'm vaxxed and boosted, by the way. So, Good. for what it's worth. Well, we're pulling for you. Thank you. You know that. <laughs> okay, so I I said uh, I asked all, all three of you to decide what it is you wanted to talk about. What what was most significantly important to you? Uh, in 2021, and you all had started with the same issue, and that is fiscal reality, financial responsibility, Canadians holding government to account, but it all comes back to the basic fundamental dollars and cents reality for this country. Uh, Linda, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, well, you know, I listened intently to your last guest, Roy. He was wonderful, and he actually nailed it. Um, So I might sound like I'm repeating him, but You know, Roy, for years on your show, we've talked about government over their heads and debt and consumers. So I pulled up some numbers from 2021, and I just thought I'd remind people that our federal and provincial net debt doubled in the last few years to over $2 trillion, which is 91.6% of economic growth. Unsustainable? I think so. Household debt in the meantime, in the third quarter, we added another $51.6 billion to our record 2.1 
trillion in household debt, which is actually at 109% of GDP. And those numbers scare me. So for every disposable dollar that we have, we owe a dollar 77. So the fiscal reality, you know, and now you're right, like inflation. And I listened to Dan McTagroy. He's warning that these new carbon taxes are going to push up gas prices even more. But they're up 42% and they're helping to fuel inflation, food prices. You mentioned it. All of these when incomes are not growing and now we've got the new variant and again, poor little businesses are going to have to suffer. And so will consumers, um, as they say, the people that have lots of money and a guaranteed government job may not worry, but there's a lot of people that I am worried about. So I think as we head in to 2022, that's got to be a reality check. Okay. And you are right. When Christine Freeland can make a mistake about the billions now she plans on spending after we've already spent $340 billion on COVID, and she can't get the numbers right? Uh, well, I, I, I think there might have been a little bit of gamesmanship there with that <laughs> or $7.4 billion turning suddenly into 11 point whatever it was, billion, going up 61%. Okay, let's, let's thank Catherine for... Uh, for stepping up here when she's not feeling well. And I, I know what it feels like to, to, to have to try to talk and think at the same time when you're not well. It's hard enough when you're feeling okay, at least for me. Um, so Catherine, I'm not chewing gum, though, Roy, so oh, I should be That's okay. it. That's the third part of the triangle. <laughs> so, Catherine, what, uh, what's, what's the perspective that you bring to this one? Well, we're, it's it's very interesting. We're all homing in on the same thing. And I, I listened to your interview with Yves Giroux yesterday, the parliamentary budget officer. Also, I heard the uh, Carleton University economist uh, and agreed with them both 100%. What we've been doing, and granted, the pandemic, extraordinary circumstances. We know government had to step up to the plate, and they did. We can criticize them because in many areas they deserve it. But generally speaking, we needed that to happen. But what we've had, I think the interesting thing is, though, this federal government and some provincial governments were in financial trouble prior to the pandemic. So, yes, the pandemic, for sure, uh, extraordinary. We needed to do things, but we were already cruising in a bad direction prior to it. And when I look at what needs to be done now, I would I would shorten it down to we have the unproductive sector of the economy, i.e. government a lot of these uh, so-called social entrepreneurs who are basically an arm of government, even though they pretend to be businesses, they're not. They're subsidized by government. Uh, we have that unproductive, uh, unproductive part of the economy growing like crazy. The productive part of the economy, the private sector businesses that employ people, that uh, pay a lot of taxes to government. Of course, their employees pay taxes as well and so on. Those that contribute to the national bottom line are hurting very badly. And when I looked at the mandate letters that Justin Trudeau, you know, he never writes them, let's not fool ourselves, but, you know, that those so-called mandate letters the prime minister gives to all of the ministers to lay out the direction for the next little while, they were all looking at climate issues, equity issues. None of them were looking at actually creating prosperity in the productive part of the economy. And that worries me terribly. It should worry every Canadian because if, if that sector, if the, if the contributing sector isn't functioning properly and it's badly damaged right now, uh, then we don't have healthcare. We don't have uh, education. We don't have social services. That's yeah. the bottom line. Government never pays for it. It's like taking your car out with it smoking badly in the front left tires flat. You're not going far. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Pretty much. Good analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Michelle Simpson, I waited, Michelle, because you're the one with the sitting in Parliament experience. 
and you have the added bonus and uh, the you know the uh, the unquestioned bonus of sitting beside Mr. Trudeau, having those glorious moments of having the now Prime Minister share with you his the late, latest articles about him. As you sat down and thought you'd be talking about the business of the country, he showed you stories that were all about him. Uh, so, I had to say that. So, you point out, Michelle, and I really like this, 20 years ago, when the country was running into fiscal issues, Canadians really cared. We were into it. We demanded that our government be responsible. Not so much now, right? Roy, not at all. And I think it's unfortunate, but this whole pandemic is going to be a cloak um, to have cover for our current government that is going to spend, 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 spend uncontrollably. And the one thing I can tell you is it's all about the votes, all about votes. And that's what scares me. Political end of it is so strong. It isn't about the health concerns and it isn't about the economic concerns. It's about getting the vote. And we're seeing that more and more. And uh, I just hope that Canadians wake up to that. Yeah, because ultimately we're going to be paying the bill. Or absolutely, Canadians who aren't born yet are going to be paying the bill. Yep. And the answer, as Michelle points out in her email to all of us earlier this week, is, of course, to just follow the uh, the uh, the uh, triptych of um, Mr. Singh, whose theory is that all we have to do is tax the billionaires and then everything will be just fine. Except, Michelle, you point out there's less than 50 of them in the Canada, so... Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, free for all here for for ten minutes or so as we as we head into the the end of the of this program this segment. Uh, whatever you want to talk about, let's uh, let's 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 run out of twenty twenty one with a lot of steam. Why don't we talk about healthcare? Sure. Because if there's if there's a, a system that was already in big trouble before the pandemic, despite the fact a lot of Canadians still believe in the mythology that we have this fabulous healthcare system. We haven't had it for a very long time, if you look at the actual facts involved. And by the way, we pay a lot for it. So the calls for the next little while are going to be, we need to throw more money at it. No, we don't actually. We pay more money per capita for healthcare than many countries that get much better results, actual healthcare results than we do. There was a poll done relatively recently um, that showed that Canadians were much more receptive now after the pandemic, and we've seen the horrible weaknesses in our healthcare system, um, more, much more receptive to structural change. So I would hope that continues because we need to get away from our, our, our inefficient, expensive government monopoly and start looking at the systems in places like New Zealand, uh, various European countries and so on that have a parallel private public system and it's not two tier, it's still contained within the envelope of a public system but it's much, much more efficient. So I think that should be one lesson of the pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, healthcare, Linda, Michelle? 
Well, I just want to put a shout out to all the healthcare workers that, you know, it's been really, really tough. And yeah, Catherine makes a good point. But my message, you know, as I look at 2021 and then going into 2022 is put your financial house in order. We are going to see interest rates rise. We have been so lucky at a Bank of Canada rate at 0.25%. We know south of the border, they're looking at three rate increases probably in 2022. And too many people are living off of credit and they also think their homes will continue to go up in value so my message is you know the government and that's something i forgot to say i don't think trudeau or freeland even gives the department of finance any respect and they just think that we can spend 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 we had the debt clock that traveled across this country back in the 1990s and even paul martin listened it is time to bring the debt clock back for canadians and for government and we got to get that message across michelle Linda, I couldn't agree with you more. It really scares the hell out of me about how much spending is going on. And, you know, as much as I hated it, I pulled back in everything I could because, you know, it was, I don't think the sky's falling, but in some respects, I, I wake up at two, three in the morning and I think about all these things and the health care. Is, is a huge issue, huge. And I don't, I, I, I agree with uh, Catherine, we have to have parallel. We have to look outside the box. We keep batting our heads against the same old, same old, and we're getting the same results. You know what's interesting? I, about 30 years ago, I started talking about parallel healthcare system. We talked to uh, Europeans who had it, and the Swiss particularly, where everybody has to buy insurance, health care, and it's based on uh, the fundamental cost that you pay is, or the fee that you pay is based on your income, your ability to pay, but everybody has to buy insurance. And I was told that I was a, what was I, a fascist, um, I was a communist, I was a, I mean, there were things that there were ists I, uh, that I was that I had no idea existed. But now I think we're starting to understand that we cannot continue like this because healthcare, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but healthcare has been a political football for decades now, for generations, and now we're starting. Well, no, we're not starting. We're we're paying the price. You know, Absolutely. you know what countries, countries that had a, a parallel private system. You know what they did during the pandemic? It was interesting. They switched a lot of their surgeries and procedures to these clinics, and they kept their COVID cases in the public hospitals. So they didn't have the huge backlogs that we now are facing with all these people that are, frankly, some of them are dying because they didn't get a diagnostic test for cancer a year ago and their cancer got so much worse that they couldn't fix it finally. And I mean, that's, you know, it's awful what's happened. But because we didn't have a a system to, you know, to sort of back up our public system. And, and you know, if that doesn't bring the point home to people, I don't know what does. But, you know, to end on one note, Roy, I think we've lost a lot of our freedoms as Canadians during the pandemic. And we were willing to sacrifice them temporarily. But I think a lot of governments, and I'm not just talking about left-leaning governments, I'm talking about a lot of governments have enjoyed their increased control over the citizenship. And I think we as citizens, as voters, need to push back against that hard because I think even though they justified this with the pandemic, I think they're going to be very reluctant to relinquish that degree of influence and control once the pandemic is a thing of the past. And party notwithstanding, you know, I remember speaking with Michael Bryant. 
who's the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Mr. Bryan and I didn't agree on him very much when he was the Attorney General for Ontario. But he said at the beginning, when, when, the first, um, when the first restrictions were being brought in, he said, well, let's pay very close attention here because the first time they do it, it'll be tough for governments to do because they're not, not accustomed to it. But each time, it'll become easier. Yeah, I yeah, agree. It's dangerous. Very it's dangerous, a- and our freedoms are so important in Canada. And some Canadians might think, oh, yeah, that's kind of a nice thing to have. But, you know, things like freedom of speech aren't just important for what we say on the Internet. And we know we're going to see another piece of legislation come down to try to restrict that from the feds in the next little while. Our freedom underlies our democracy. It underlies our market economy, which has been pretty successful by and large. It is such a fundamental thing. We cannot sacrifice it. And that's going to be a challenge to my thinking going forward. Okay, so what are you and, having, what are you eating for Christmas dinner? <laughs> <laughs> well, turkey? I'm a vegetarian, and I cook a turkey because my family needs turkey. <laughs> Wait so. a minute! Hold! Stop! Stop! For and me. I don't eat it. <laughs> Wait a minute! You're a vegetarian. I'm allergic to turkey. I've been a vegetarian for 50 years. No. Oh my God! I didn't know that. Wow. Ooh. Well, I don't usually, you know, tell tales out of school. So. <laughs> so what's well, so- my daughter. What's he the- wants organic turkey, so organic it is. <laughs> when any when any of the greenies that are sitting there eating their steaks talk about the environment, I say I've done more for the environment by not eating meat in my you know fifty odd years than you've done <laughs> than you've ever done. So stop it. Wait a minute. <laughs> What's the substitute for turkey? Oh, I Ooh. just have a lot of nice veggies. Okay. That's all. all right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't eat tofu turkey or any of that jazz. No, ooh. I hear it's terrible. I've never tried it. Oh, I had I had one of those burgers, eh? No. Well, half, I tried I those, half, too. I had half of one. <laughs> half. <laughs> and you got half down? No, no, sort of. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's just say that it was, it was handy there was a wastebasket nearby. <laughs> If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.